Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 30, X-ray vision. In this episode, X-rays and radioactivity are discovered. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In the last episode, technological development that led straight to the discovery of electrons was the Geissler tube. Another researcher was using types of Geissler tubes to investigate cathode rays. More specifically, he was interested in how cathode rays hit various materials and caused them to glow. In his work, he darkened his experimental laboratory and put his Geissler tube inside a cylinder of black cardboard. On November 8, 1895, while working with this setup, he noticed a greenish glow from a sheet of paper that was coated with a chemical, barium platinocyanide, and hung on the wall. The paper glowed only when the Geissler tube was switched on. The man was Wilhelm Konrad Röntgen from Germany, and it turns out that he was red-green colorblind, just like Dalton of a century earlier. As Howard Seliger noted in a 100th anniversary article in Physics Today on Röntgen's discovery, This was precisely the type of research problem in which Röntgen excelled, the painstaking measurement of difficult-to-detect electromagnetic phenomena. Röntgen was red-green colorblind, and color-defective individuals tend to become extremely discriminating observers, unconsciously compensating for their deficiency by correlating shapes, shades, and textures of familiar objects with their true colors. Röntgen realized that the cathode rays in the tube hit the anode in the tube. Some unknown kind of rays were generated, passed through the glass tube, passed through the cardboard, and struck the coated paper on the wall. He could even get the same glow if he moved the paper to the room next door. Clearly, these unknown rays were able to travel through even walls. Because they were new, mysterious, and unknown, Röntgen called them X-rays. We now know that X-rays are a form of light, but our eyes do not respond to it. Such invisible sorts of light include ultraviolet rays, infrared rays, microwaves, and radio waves. But photographic film and plates do detect X-rays, and Röntgen changed medicine forever with this fact. He placed his wife's hand with a ring on a finger over a photographic plate and shone his new X-rays onto the plate. After developing the plate, a clear image of the bones inside the hand was visible. Röntgen became a worldwide success, and even in Germany his radiation became known as Röntgenstrahlen, that is, Röntgen rays. These X-rays apparently had a much, much shorter wavelength than regular visible light. Immediately, the scientific world took to researching these X-rays. One of the first discoveries about X-rays was published by J.J. Thompson. That is, if you transmit X-rays through a container of gas, 
they make the gas electrically conductive. So now, not only do we have a theory of ionic conduction in liquids, now we get a theory of ionic conduction in gases. Second, if you make the gas conductive with X-rays, that conductivity lasts for a bit and dies away at a measurable rate. Thompson and a New Zealand-born scientist, Ernest Rutherford, found the following observation: Take that conductive gas and let it flow through fiberglass. And the conductivity vanished. Evidently, contact of the gas with the glass wool discharged the electrical particles. After these and a few other experiments, they showed that ions only exist in gases when acted upon by X-rays. Over time, the ions slowly recombine and neutralize. So there was a relationship here to chemistry. But we shall see a bit more chemistry appear regarding X-rays a bit later. But even more, this property gave rise to a way to actually view the path a charged particle can take within an electric or magnetic field. Charles Wilson, a Scottish physicist, discovered in 1897 that ions can condense humid air into droplets. So now you can build a container with air saturated with water vapor. Send your particles in, and watch the drops condense along the path the ions take. This is called a cloud chamber. Another of those interested in X-rays was a French scientist, Henri Becquerel. His interest was slightly different than Röntgen's. In how, when exposed to sunlight, some chemicals respond with their own glowing, now called fluorescence. Among the materials found to fluoresce under X-rays was uranium glass, with a distinct bright yellow color prized now among collectors. Other materials known to fluoresce were phosphorescent calcium compounds, calcite, rock salt, and so on. Becquerel thought maybe fluorescence included X-rays. By way of his background, Becquerel came from a series of physicists. His father, Alexandre Edmond Becquerel, discovered the photovoltaic effect in 1839, which light generates electricity in a material. His grandfather, Antoine César Becquerel, was also a professor of physics. Henri had some materials in his laboratory that came from his father and grandfather. So, as an experiment. Becquerel wrapped a photographic plate with two sheets of heavy black paper, and placed it in sunlight for several hours. Obviously, the sunlight couldn't reach the plate, being blocked by the paper. Left alone, the photographic plate would remain unexposed. But then he took a fluorescent material, a uranium-potassium sulfate compound he inherited from his father, and placed it on top of the wrapped plate and left it in the sun. The bright sun activated the fluorescence of the uranium compound. Any fluorescence from the material that included X-rays, the plate would detect. If no X-rays came out of the compound, the plate would remain blank. So he developed the plate, and sure enough, the plate had detected X-rays, and clearly fluorescence from at least this compound included X-rays. By this time, February 1896, he put his uranium compound away 
inside a closed drawer in his desk, and it happened to sit on top of another unused photographic plate. When Becquerel tried to use the plate in the desk drawer, it was fogged up with some kind of interference. How could this be? Eventually, Becquerel realized that the uranium compound itself was emitting X-rays even in the dark. What's going on? A Polish-French chemist, Marie Skłodowska Curie, in a paper published soon after Becquerel's work, called this phenomenon radioactivity. In the French title of a paper, "Sur une substance nouvelle radioactive contenue dans la pêche blende." Her research showed that, yes, the compound is radioactive, but only because of the uranium atoms in the compound. The atoms themselves were emitting X-rays. Uranium, which in pure form is a very dense metal, gives off X-rays, and every one of its chemical compounds also does. By 1898, she and her husband Pierre Curie determined that the element thorium also is radioactive. The Curies continued to search for other radioactive elements, starting with researching pitchblende, a uranium ore which has the formula U3O8. In it, they separated out a portion that was around 400 times more radioactive than uranium, and no matter what chemistry they did on that fraction of material, the radioactivity remained. One of the active materials was precipitated out with bismuth metal. But its radioactivity determined that it was a new element, which the Curies named polonium after the country where Marie was born. At that time, in the 1890s, a large portion was part of the Russian Empire, and anti-nationalist laws in Russia clamped down on Poles. The element's name was a way of getting back at the Tsarist regime. A second element precipitated out with the metal barium. And was so radioactive the Curies named it radium. Much of the work the Curies did came from the tailings of the used-up silver mines at Joachimsthal. From the Middle Ages on, silver and lead were extracted there, plus more recently some uranium. But all the stony residue, it was considered useless, and the government sent several railroad cars of the tailings to the Curies. To do the separations, their laboratory was an abandoned dissection shed from the municipal school. All of the rocks suddenly became valuable. From several tons of tailings, they extracted about one tenth of one gram of radium chloride salt. Radium is so radioactive that it appears luminous, with a faint glow visible in the dark. This amazing property. Resulted in a variety of commercial products, some downright wacky, in the early 20th century. The most famous of such products was the radium watch, which had a luminous dial so that you could read the time in the dark. The novelty manufacturing company of Jackson, Michigan, advertised the X radium foot warmer, so that people going out in automobiles in the winter, such as mail carriers, could keep their feet warm. But apparently, the product contained no actual radium, but only some base metal used as a warming device. The Radium Luminous Material Corporation of New York, however, sold undark numbers to mount on your front door so you can find your home at night. 
radioactive water was sold as a snake oil remedy and health tonic in the 1920s. In France, a faux radia lipstick was sold to give you a set of、um, glowing lips, as well as faux radia toothpaste for shiny white teeth. There was even a radium-powered athletic supporter for men to revitalize them, I suppose. Plus, there was this song, "The Radium Dance." By Gene Schwartz from an entirely forgettable musical called Piff Puff Poof in 1904. A decade later, in the Ziegfeld Follies, one song performed was "My Radium Girl" by Gene Buck and Louis A. Hirsch. Radium was literally hot stuff. Then investigations started into deaths from workers at the U.S. Radium Corporation, where women were hired to paint radium compounds onto watch and clock dials, and they licked the tips of their brushes to keep a fine point. A lawsuit by surviving women in 1938 brought an end to practically all radium uses. Other than occasionally treating cancers, some of you may have heard of the X-ray shoe-fitting fluoroscope, a fad from the mid-20th century. X-rays are a type of ionizing radiation. We heard about the gases already, and as such, eventually were banned for health concerns from most commercial establishments. Dr. Marie Curie herself died of aplastic anemia. A deficiency in the number of blood cells in 1934, now known to be caused by exposure to ionizing radiation. There is an urban myth that her laboratory notebooks are so loaded with residual radiation as to be deathly poisonous. This myth was dispelled in 2016 when a study done on two of her notebooks, held at the Wellcome Library in London, showed that radiation was definitely detectable. But certainly not fatal or exceedingly high. The American Council on Science and Health concludes: Marie and Pierre Curie worked with large amounts of radioactivity in their laboratory in an era when laboratory safety and radiation safety practices were rudimentary. As a result, both were almost certainly contaminated with radioactivity inside and out. But the contamination left behind on their laboratory notebooks. And the radioactivity inside their bodies does not seem to have posed a risk to others at the times of their death, nor does it pose a threat to others today. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. As to being a woman scientist at that time. Marie Curie, with her husband Pierre and Becquerel, won the 1903 Nobel Prize in Physics. 
She was the first woman appointed to the faculty of the University of Paris in its 650 years of existence. By 1911, the French Academy of Sciences refused to admit her, but later that year she won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. She was the only person until Linus Pauling in 1963 to win two Nobel Prizes. One more comment about radium. The Curies found in 1899 that there was a gas emitted from radium itself, and it stayed radioactive for a month. Ramsey, whom we recall nearly single-handedly discovered an entire group of elements, the so-called inert gases, isolated this gas and found it to be an element, particularly through spectroscopy. He named the gas niton, from Latin nitens, shining. Later, it was renamed radon. Radon is a very dense gas, so it will tend to sink lower in a container. It's a member of the inert gases, so chemically it pretty much does nothing. Its major problem is being radioactive. It's produced by uranium and thorium, we shall talk about this a bit more later, which is found in many rocks and minerals throughout the world. It's heavy, so if you enter a building's basement, it will diffuse slowly into the basement from surrounding soil and accumulate. Therefore, many homes require an air pump to circulate the radon-containing air out of the basement. So, what exactly were these rays coming out of radioactive elements? Rutherford, in 1899, found them to be of three types, depending on how well the rays penetrated materials and how the rays were deflected by magnetic fields. Rutherford gave the three types of rays in radioactivity their names in 1902. Alpha rays, beta rays, and gamma rays, after the first three letters of the Greek alphabet. Easiest to determine were the gamma rays. Magnets didn't affect them, and they behaved a lot like X-rays and other forms of light, so they were just another form of electromagnetic wave, but with an even higher energy and shorter wavelength than X-rays. They can pass through a centimeter of lead. Beta rays were deflected by magnets just like cathode rays, so Becquerel observed that these rays were composed of electrons. These beta rays can pass about a half millimeter of aluminum foil. Radioactive materials therefore emit beta particles, a synonym for electrons. But what about alpha rays? Let's go back to 1886 again, before X-rays, radioactivity, and electrons were discovered. In that year, German scientist Eugen Goldstein was working with Geissler tubes again, but using a cathode perforated with holes. He observed cathode rays heading toward the anode, but other rays pointing in the opposite direction. Evidently, there were positive rays as well, along with the negatively charged cathode rays. Goldstein called them Kanalstrahlen, or canal rays. The color of these canal rays varied with whatever trace gases were in the Geissler tubes. These positive canal rays were studied in more detail by German physicist Wilhelm Wien in 1898, and then soon after by Thomson, who found that they had to be a lot heavier than electrons. 
In fact, they didn't all have the same mass like electrons did. Instead of being a tiny fraction of the mass of an atom like an electron, they were of similar mass to electrons. The exact mass of canal rays seemed to depend on what trace amounts of gases were left in the vacuum tubes. But the lightest particle was the same mass as a hydrogen atom. Rutherford suggested that the lightest positive particle in canal rays was the smallest unit of positive charge. Eventually, he confirmed this by experiments creating a particle that was identical to a positive hydrogen ion. By 1920, Rutherford named this particle the proton. So now we loop back to the question of what were alpha rays coming out of radioactive atoms. Magnets deflected them like positive particles, but only a bit, so they had to be fairly heavy. They could go through only one fiftieth of a millimeter of aluminum foil at a speed about one tenth of light. Their mass was the same as a helium atom, atomic weight of four, or four hydrogen atoms, but with a double positive charge. Then what are they? Four protons plus two electrons. All wrapped up into one particle, that presupposes six subatomic particles merged into one alpha particle, which seems a bit unusual. Not until the 1930s was this problem unraveled. First, in 1930, Walter Botha and his student Herbert Becker in Germany performed the following experiment. They placed a small amount of polonium on a metal plate so that its alpha rays would be emitted. In front of that plate, they made a foil made of beryllium metal, boron, or lithium metal. Something was being emitted, but they couldn't tell exactly what was coming out of the foils. It seemed that the alpha rays were knocking rays out of the foil. A couple of years later, the daughter of Marie Curie, Irene, and her husband, Frédéric Joliot Curie. Looked at this odd set of rays by placing a wax target in front of the beryllium. When the rays hit the wax, they knocked high-energy protons out of the wax, which could be detected in a Geiger counter. These weird rays hitting the wax had no charge. They thought the rays coming out of the beryllium were particles of light or photons. English physicist James Chadwick was not convinced and thought the rays weren't massless as photons are. He instead said they were neutral particles about the same mass as protons. Chadwick called them neutrons. German physicist Werner Heisenberg, whom we shall meet again when we reach quantum mechanics, suggested immediately that the alpha particle wasn't four protons plus two electrons, but only two protons plus two neutrons. You still preserve the double positive charge. And you only have four items instead of six inside an alpha particle, and this is the view accepted today. So now you can see how science shifted dramatically with three discoveries: the X-ray, the electron, and radioactivity, all within the span of a year and a half, from November 1895 to April 1897. In our next episode, we shall begin to see the effects of chemistry. From these three discoveries, until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 